Hey, how's it going? This is Ellen. She's engaged to one of my closest college friends and also happens to work with companies to help them get through the FDA clinical trial process. I got to ask her questions like, when will Neuralink finish human trials? Who selects trial participants? And are there ways to expedite the approval timeline? My name is Ellen Maui. I am a clinical research associate, um, and I have a background in biomedical engineering, um, neurology, and, and research broadly. And my primary objective is to ensure that if an FDA inspector were to come on site, there would be no findings that would jeopardize uh, conduct of the trial and subsequently approval of the, the therapy. I work in clinical operations, which is kind of the, the active conduct of clinical trials at the site level. When Elon says that Neuralink has submitted their FDA application, do you think that's the IDE? I do think it's the IDE. However, the FDA's timeline to um, return comments on an IDE is 30 days unless they have questions or concerns um, or issues with the IDE. So if an IDE has been submitted, it's likely in ongoing negotiations. Um, the way an IDE works, you know, you submit it and the FDA has 30 days to respond to you. Um, you know, they can either respond with an affirmative, not respond within 30 days, which is considered an affirmative, or they respond with um, questions, concerns, requests. Interesting. So no response is considered like, go ahead. Yes. Okay. And then there's nothing that's going to be shown publicly until quite a bit later, right? Like there's no way to go research if Neuralink, what Neuralink status is. No, I mean, you can submit a FOIA, um, but you know, that's, it's always kind of a, um, it, it, it's not for sure. Um, if you're going to get the information that you request with a FOIA, like you can, um, like submit a request for an IDE application, but that's typically not going to be information that's that's public. I think the first, um, you know, public FDA um, or like regulated information that would come out would be a clinical trial listing, whatever um, that that's announced. And and clinical trial listings can be they can be posted on clinicaltrials.gov even before they're recruiting, um, so you can. You can see, you know, if, if a study is, you know, listed, but not recruiting, currently recruiting, you know, invitation only if they're closed to recruitment um, or what have you. But I, I think that would be the first um, like regulated information that that will be available upon um, acceptance of the IDE. I see. Um... Did you see that Neuralink or Elon announced on Twitter that Neuralink is going to do like an update presentation on Halloween this year? Yeah, yeah. I thought that was a, um, like the, the branding of Halloween is, is an interesting time to do that. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful that it'll be announcement of their IDE acceptance and um, initiation or, or, or announcement of, of their trials. Um, but, but who really knows, you know, like, in interactions with the FDA, it's it can take months, years. Um, it, it's it's very inconsistent um, and unpredictable how long 
you know, the negotiations and, and meetings are going to take. I see. So what, what do you think are some of the possible holdups? Um, well, I think, you know, like with the, the level of interaction that you get with the FDA through a breakthrough designation, um, although like it is beneficial to have that level of access, the FDA has a lot of time um, to respond to you. So for example, those sprint meetings, um, you know, they're, they're called sprint meetings, but you know, they have 45 days to, to respond to your requests or, or address an individual issue. Um, you know, with even like pre IDE meetings, um, you know, the time frame from like submission or request for a pre-submission meeting, um, to the actual meeting could be anywhere from 75 to 90 days. Um, you know, like I mentioned, like the, the FDA has 30 days to respond to your IDE. Like every time you interact with the FDA, like a new clock starts. Um, so it's, it's a very slow process um, just to, to interact and, you know, get answers. Um, however, I think the more time and, and the more careful that an organization is with their protocol development, statistical analysis plan, um, you know, data acquisition plan, um, the better. Like you, you really want to have a well-designed protocol um, that the FDA will be, you know, more willing to accept um, because it's, you know, the end goal is that pre-market um, application, you know, like it's your, your goal is, is the market. Um, and although, you know, getting, getting into human clinical trials is a, is a milestone. I think the more careful you are with your protocol development, um, the, the better outcome you'll have in, in the long run. Like you can shave, you know, five years off your development process by taking an extra year or year and a half in your pre-IDE negotiations and conversations. Um, I, I don't think I've seen any literature published on the, the preclinical animal studies. Um, you know, I they may be asked, the FDA may be asking for additional um, preclinical in vivo studies. Um, like it, it is really hard to say what is, you know, what the delay is, um, but it's, it's most likely FDA driven. Typical timeline for trials. Like if you could just like the entire thing. <sighs> yeah. So once you get in human, so that initial feasibility study, if you look at BrainGate, Synchron, like the Medtronic, neurostimulator device, um, you're looking at a year for the actual trial timeline. That doesn't include, you know, the, the time that it will take to recruit patients or analyze the data. So for your initial feasibility studies, you're probably looking at like two, three years, um, you know, I, I'd say two, three conservatively. And then after your initial feasibility studies, you need to do the pivotal studies. 
So there may be a number of pivotal studies that you need to conduct to display efficacy. Um, so, you know, those will probably be, again, like approximately one year in duration. Um, and with the increased enrollment numbers, I'd, I'd say probably three years for completion of a pivotal study in, in the data analysis. So probably looking at, I'd say, you know, six, seven years to market, and that's being um, pretty optimistic. And their initial application is to help people with paralysis be able to regain control of like a computer keyboard and mouse, mm -hmm. or just like regain some kind of limited functionality relative to their longer term aspirations. But their goal is to help with a wide variety of neurological issues. And so if there's approval for Neuralink to do this helping paralyzed patients, does that mean that they can also use the same tech and not have to go through another process of getting approval for helping other types of illnesses? So I, with devices, I'm, you know, I'm not 100% sure of, of how um, like off-label use for devices works and in, in marketing of such, but I know with drug trials, if you want to market for a specific indication, um, you need to conduct a, a clinical trial for that specific indication. And, and trials can run in parallel for multiple indications, or um, you know, you could have a protocol in which like multiple indications um, are you know, targeted. However, um, just for streamlining the regulatory process, um, typically more focused um, therapies uh, or indications are, you know, advised. Um, like you don't want to cast too wide of a net because um, it's difficult to show efficacy. Okay, I see. Um, and who selects trial participants? So trial participants are you know, it's described in the protocol. So you have your inclusion and exclusion criteria um, for what sort of patients that you'd uh, like to enroll and, and must enroll in the protocol. Um, and just depending on the, the, the therapeutic device um, or sponsor, the, the inclusion exclusion criteria could be extremely broad or, or fairly strict. Um, I know the FDA has a guidance document that was released in May 2021 on uh, brain-computer interfaces that specifies uh, their recommended inclusion-exclusion uh, criteria for subjects. But ultimately, you know, when you have a clinical trial ongoing, it's it's really the responsibility of the investigator at the the clinical trial site um, to make the call on who, who they're enrolling in the, in the study, you know, it's, it's a pretty big deal if a subject who is not eligible is enrolled. Um, and it, and it may affect the statistical analysis and in a negative way. So it's really important to have, um, a well-designed inclusion and exclusion criteria. I see. And so you mentioned an investigator, does that mean like the primary point of contact at the company or organization that's yeah this. so the principal investigator is going to be the um the person at 
the, the hospital who is enrolling the patients. And, you know, the way a, a drug or device trial works is you have your sponsor. So in this case, the sponsor would be Neuralink. However, um, the investigation is going to be run at um, most likely clinical trial sites, which are academic medical centers. Um, so they'll be working with key opinion leaders, um, physicians who kind of have some, some weight behind them. Um, and the physicians assume responsibility for the conduct of the, of the trial. Of course, the sponsor is responsible. The sponsor is responsible for reporting um, to the FDA. However, you know, the investigator at the site is the person who is responsible for the conduct of the research, um, reporting adverse events to the sponsor um, and ensuring that the, the studies being conducted according to protocol. So really the, um, the, the principal investigator um, becomes you know, the, the person who is primarily responsible for the research once it's approved by the IRB um, and, you know, they oversee the, the patients because you don't want to have the kind of undue influence of, of the sponsor. There's usually a pretty clear division between um, the, the investigative site, like the principal investigator um, and his team and, and the sponsor. Is there an FDA in other countries, FDA equivalent in other countries? Yeah, yeah. So every country has their own governing body um, for clinical trials. I, I'm not, I, you know, I'm not an expert in international clinical trials. Um, but for example, there is the EMA, it's probably the largest governing body um, for drug and device regulations outside of the FDA. Um, and the EMA, uh, they govern, you know, European drug and device approvals. Um, I'd say the one thing that they, they have pretty similar um, regulations. They do have some difference in, in the classification of, of devices. Like for example, instead of having class two devices, they have class 2A and, and 2B, um, which may affect the way that um, BCIs are, are marketed in Europe. But in addition to the FDA, and the EMA, you also have um, like the UK's um, MHRA. Canada has their own um, regulatory board. I mean, every country regulates um, drugs and devices. And in some countries, it, it may be advantageous from a, a, a timeline perspective um, to run trials there. But ultimately, you see most sponsors going to the US and, and the EU um, for drug development, because typically, you know, an approval from the EMA or FDA will give you a lot more leeway when you're, when you're looking to expand internationally. Like it, it's a pretty strong stamp of approval. Gotcha. Um, this, oh. So there's a, a couple of, or a few audience questions, and I'm just going to read them verbatim so okay. I don't misrepresent what they're wanting to, to 
have answered. Um, can you get a general license to do human trials where you can explore different use cases and try something that wasn't originally planned? Or do you have to spell out the use cases in advance? So typically, um, your clinical trials will require specifically designed primary endpoints and indications. However, you know, if you are an investigator at an institution and, and you're working with a drug that is already approved or a device that is already approved for another indication, it's a little bit easier um, to explore different indications and applications. Um, if you're a single investigator performing an investigator-initiated study um, as compared to you know, a, a drug or device company that that's trying to explore different indications. Um, that's that's a bit more regulated. But if you are just an investigator at a, at an institution and you and you want to, you know, test um, an already approved drug on another disease state, um, that would just be you know a matter of writing up a protocol, um, submitting it to your your own institutionals institutional review board, um, and then going through your local approval process. Um, but in general, like a, a drug or device company can't, you know, do a, do a catch-all clinical trial. Um, it's a little bit more, more tightly regulated according to the indication. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I think you answered uh, this one before, but um... With COVID vaccines, they were able to pipeline the three phases very closely together to expedite the timeline. Is this only possible in an emergency? Or can a company like Neuralink throw extra money at the process to be able to pipeline the different phases? So with device trials, like I mentioned, like you, you don't have phase one, two, and three. You have your feasibility and, and pivotal studies. And it's not really possible to move into a pivotal study without that initial feasibility and, and safety data. Um, and, and while like the FDA is kind of a, it can be like a pay to play situation, um, throwing money at the process, it, you know, it's not gonna speed things up um, dramatically. However, you know, with the COVID vaccines, a, a lot of developers used adaptive design protocols where you're combining your phase one and phase two and phase two and phase three. So um, with the breakthrough device designation, they do have an opportunity to work with the FDA for that adaptive protocol design. Um, so with an adaptive protocol, like I mentioned, like you can combine your phase one and phase two. Um, or phase two and phase three to, to expedite the process. And then also you can kind of plan at the beginning for um, modifications to the protocol after an interim analysis. So, you know, you can, you know, change the, the dose mid-study after an interim analysis, or um, you can plan for, you know, population enrichment, like enrolling um, kind of a, a sub, subsect um, of your of your patient population, um, like narrowing down the recruitment for a certain population that may benefit the most. Um, you know, you can shift towards um, dosing plans that that seem to be a little bit more beneficial. Um, or you can, you know, include options to 
stop or um, you know speed up your trial through adaptive design. Um, so I think the COVID vaccine development benefited from adaptive design. And in addition, they, they also had, um, you know, the, the efficacy of the COVID vaccines could be proven a lot quicker just because of the, um, the spread of, of COVID. Um, you know, instead of waiting years, they were able to, to prove efficacy within a couple months. Um, and they also enrolled the trials a, a lot quicker. Um, due to the, you know, global pandemic. So I think it's, it's tempting when you have a, a precedent like the development of COVID vaccines to think, oh, you know, why can't all drugs or, or devices be um, developed this way? And, and while there are um, like aspects of vaccine development that, that, that can apply to, to other drugs and devices broadly, it was really a, a unique circumstance. However, there, there are a lot of therapies in which the phase one and two and phase two and three phases are combined. Um, and, you know, you can do protocol modifications um, following, you know, your interim analysis to, to optimize and, and perhaps speed up the process. Um, what sets Neuralink's FDA clinical trials apart from other similar companies like BlackRock Neurotech? Hmm. I, I don't think I can answer that without seeing, um, their proposed clinical trials. I think, um, what may set them apart is, you know, their exploratory endpoints. I think the primary endpoint for, um, their initial trials is just going to be safety. So looking at treatment, emergent adverse events, um, or, you know, events that, adverse events that, um, you know, come up and appear to be related to, to the treatment and, and just verifying that it is safe. Um, so in that sense, I think their, their trials are going to be very similar. I think it'll boil down to, you know, who are the investigators, um, that they're working with, what is their inclusion criteria, um, you know, what, what's the exact patient population that they're looking at? Um, I, I anticipate the ages are going to be similar. Usually you're looking at, you know, 18 to 70 years old for, for patients with the in, implanted BCIs. Um, and yeah, I, it really will just have to, to wait and see, um, what's their clinical trial registration posts. Based on your knowledge, is this process similar on the medical device side? Like for yes. the things that there can be parallels for? Yeah, yeah. So in a medical device study, you're still going to have a database that's derived from um, the protocol, even though the phases of a, a medical device um, study are, are different from, from that of a drug therapy. Um, you're, you're still going to have your required regulatory filings. You're still going to have consents for, for subjects who are enrolled in the trial. Um, and you're still going to need to, to verify the data. So um, I think operationally, device and drug trials are, are very similar. But from a regulatory standpoint, they, they are governed by different bodies. I think when they initially got this breakthrough device designation, people thought that, hey, that doesn't really make a lot of sense because there's other devices 
that are similar to Neuralink that have been in existence for many years. And therefore, like, it's not actually a breakthrough device. Um, but I've, I found like there's a statement that uh, the FDA says, as long as there's potentially a significant positive impact on public health, then they could get this designation. And so, yeah, I guess I just wanted to verify that that's true. Yeah. I mean, I think that there are, you know, comparable devices. There's no approved comparable device. I mean, I think there is one approved BCI, um, but it's not implantable. And of course, there are other implantable BCIs that have a, you know, an active IDE and, and are actively enrolling subjects. Um, however, I think that, you know, it, it's totally reasonable that Neuralink would receive a breakthrough device designation. Okay. Um, can you go through and describe like an IDE, PMA, and de novo just briefly? Sure. So an IDE or investigational device exemption is basically an, an application to conduct a clinical trial with a device that is not currently approved. Um, it's required for all class three devices any um, other de novo device typically, or some class one or, or class two devices. Um, okay. A PMA is a pre-market application. So it's required for all class three devices or non-substantially equivalent uh, class one or class two predicate devices. And um, substantially equivalent means that it does not qualify for, or excuse me, substantially equivalent means that it does qualify for what's called a 510K uh, pre-market notification. So the substantial equivalence refers to an already marketed device or a device that was legally marketed prior to May 28th, 1976. Um, so if it is substantially equivalent, um, then you don't have to go through the trial process um, and you can apply for that pre-market notification or, or 510K rather than a full pre-market approval. There have been criticisms of this. Um, in some cases, a company may, you know, instead of innovating a design, they may just kind of make small improvements to the, the previous model. Um, and if you kind of have these series of pre-market notifications with substantial equivalents, even though you're referring to the, the previous iteration of a device um, for that substantial equivalent pre-market notification, um, you know, you get eight generations down the line um, and it, it's not really a, a substantial equivalent to the, to the originally cited device. Um, gotcha. Uh, and then de novo. Yes. So a de novo is a device that does not have a substantial equivalent. Um, it may be entering the regulation process as a class three device. Um, however, if it's considered low or moderate risk, um, then the sponsor can approve to have that de novo device designation. So although it doesn't have a substantial equivalent device, um, if it has low risk, it can be considered de novo and go through the pre-market notification 510K process rather than the full pre-market application process. Okay. Um, and then there's three classes of medical devices 
class one, class two, class three. Mm -hmm. class one is the uh, least invasive. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So class one is something like a Band-Aid, a tongue depressor, gauze, um, very low risk. No trials are needed for these and about, you know, 75% of the time. Um, and really the only regulation involved with them is um, device registration and then manufacturing um, and labeling regulations. So essentially, if you have a class one device, typically you're just registering the device with the FDA and paying the registration fee. Class two devices are, you know, considered moderate risk. Um, so they're things that don't sustain life, things like surgical systems, sutures, um, like electrodes. Usually no trials are needed for these. They can fall back on that pre-market notification um, a lot of the time. And, and just like the class one device, it's really just the um, registration, manufacturing and labeling. Um, they, they may require um, some trials and Typically, like a, a class two device, it takes six months for for approval. I did note that um, like the the Da Vinci surgical system is considered a class two device. Um, and I believe the the approved BCI on the market is also um, a class two device. I guess this kind of brings up the the fact that like there are many different things that Neuralink could have to get approval for. Right, like the electrodes, yes. the robot, the link itself. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to think if there are others, other things in addition to those three. Yeah, I think the you know the surgical system and um, you know the the neuralink, you know the the actual chip and electrodes. I think the implant itself would be one device, and then the surgical system um, would be separate. However, um, as I was researching for this, that's, it's something that I, I couldn't really, really say with certainty um, if it would be, you know, joint or, or separate. My hunch it would be, it, it'll be separate approval processes for um, their surgical system and the implant. Folks at Bringate have said that they want to help Neuralink to accelerate the, the progress as much as they can. Uh, just because there are other like medical and science benefits um, from from working with them. So how often do you see like research groups and or companies working closely together? I mean, it's hard to say. I, I guess my answer would be like quite frequently. I think in brain computer interface, um, development, there, there is a pretty um, solid example of this with BlackRock Neurotech and ClearPoint Neuro, um, who are collaborating to, you know, create the automated surgery solution. So BlackRock Neuro actually spun out of the University of Utah, and that's, you know, really common with biotechs to, to kind of spin out of um, research labs at, at universities. And, and there's a really strong collaboration between academic medical centers and um, drug and device companies. Um, and anyway, so BlackRock spun out of University of Utah. ClearPoint Neuro has, you know, an approved surgical um, stereotactic guidance systems for neurosurgery. Um, so, you know, 
you have that existing example of two neurodevelopment companies um, collaborating BlackRock with the electrode arrays um, and their brain compu computer interface technology, and then ClearPoint Neuro with the automated surgical system. Um, so I think it, you know, to succeed, I think you do have to be willing to collaborate, whether that's with your research centers, um, laboratories, manufacturing facilities. Um, I think you, you really cannot go it alone in, in drug and device development. Gotcha. Yeah. And I guess like just coming at it from the perspective of, Hey, here's this company that exists now and they're collaborating with this research organization. It seems like, Oh, well, they're, there's always all these collaborations, but actually it's, it's probably really organic. Like somebody who worked in that research organization or at the university is now like, oh, I'm going to continue the work that I was working on. Mm -hmm. And this company is like the one that's doing it. So I'm going to work with them. And then they like know everybody that they were working with in their research lab. So they end up just partnering. Yeah. I mean, and I think working with a company that already has um, an approved device that could be used as a, a as a predicate device, um, like ClearPoint, you know, that it gives you a huge advantage in the regulatory process. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. That, I guess that was a question that I was going to say for later, but um, oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, yeah, uh, de definitely. Uh, I was going to ask about this. So recently there's been news that Elon was talking to somebody at another company called Synchron mm -hmm. um, about rumors that they were going to merge together or collaborate in some way. Um, I kind of felt like things didn't really add up quite right. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of the speculation was that, oh, if this is true, the reason that they would do it is to accelerate the FDA regulatory process. Yeah, yeah. So Synchron has an active IDE. They have um, an ongoing clinical trial um, looking at, you know, patients with severe quadriplesis, um, quadriparesis, excuse me. Um, so I think that would be very advantageous. Um, however, I think the Synchron technology is, um, you know, it, it's the actual BCI. Um, and it, and I think something that's really interesting about Neuralink is their kind of, you know, multi-patent approach. Um, so the use of the surgical robot, um, the actual, you know, algorithmic um, decoding, and then of course, like the, the electrode and arrays. Um, so I think that's, it. it's going to prove a, a challenge. Um, to get all of the technology through the the regulatory and development process. Um, I think a more targeted approach is, is typically quicker. Four phases of clinical trials. Um, one is the first phase, uh, let's get a sense of like timeline. Um, first phase is like three months and entails 10 participants is what I found. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, 
before, of course, before your phase one, you have your preclinical um, development. So you have animal and, and cell trials. You also can do data modeling um, that can assist in expediting your application process. And then you have your phase one trial, which basically asks like, is this safe? And I guess I should say that for drug development, you have your preclinical phase one, two, three, and four. And then for, for device trials, it's a little different. Like, of course you also have preclinical, but then for device trials, it's um, your pilot or feasibility studies, and then your pivotal studies. So for device, for, excuse me, for drug trials, phase one asks, you know, is this drug safe? And so you're typically enrolling, you know, 20 to 100, either healthy volunteers or patients, depending on the indication. Um, like if, if you're looking at, say, like a psoriasis, um, type 2 diabetes, other drugs, you may ask healthy volunteers, um, to test for the pharmacokinetics, um, establishing the dose, um, and then just seeing if it's if it's safe to test in in humans. So about seventy percent of drugs that go through phase one trials will move on to phase two. Um, and like you mentioned, the phase one trials they really only last um, a couple months. You know, a patient may come in. Um, for you know a couple weeks in a row um just to establish you know will this hurt someone um phase two trials assess safety and efficacy um in the patient population so this is really looking at basic efficacy so you're going to have a, a much more targeted um patient population and you're also looking at a little bit longer studies so Typically, depending on the indication, um, you're looking at, you know, six months to a year. Um, and just depending on the, the indication, again, you're looking at either hundreds or sometimes up to like a thousand patients in a, in a phase two trial. Um, so after phase two, approximately 30% of drugs move from phase two to phase three. And in phase three, that's your pivotal study. So um, that demonstrates the effectiveness of a drug. So efficacy is like, does the drug influence a particular outcome in a particular patient population? And effectiveness is, does this drug work to uh, treat this disease broadly? So effectiveness, you're going to be assessing in, in a more kind of real world situation. So efficacy may be, you know, does a particular lab value um, improve or does tumor size shrink or, you know, does this specific quality of life um, outcome assessment um, like have any, have any effects where an effectiveness will be, you know, does the patient live? Um, you know, it, it's, it's kind of broader. Um, and, you know, like phase three, you know, we're again, looking at like 25% move on from phase three and that's even, um, generous, uh, 25% of the original or, or 25% of, of, um, subjects or not subject 25% of, uh, 
you know, drugs that are in phase three will, will move on. Um, so it gets, you know, I believe if you look at um, like 12% of, of drugs that enter the drug development pathway um, are going to be approved by the FDA. And even that metric I think is, is generous. So um, drug development broadly will, will take longer, usually like they say 12 years from, um, you know, from the lab to approval where device usually takes anywhere from like they say three to, to seven years. I see. Okay. Um, and there's, yeah, go ahead. Oh yeah. I was just, and then device development, like I mentioned, you have your pilot or feasibility study where you're looking at a lower number of patients, usually like in the, in the tens, um, less than a hundred usually, which basically you're trying to establish is, is this safe for your primary endpoint, your secondary or exploratory endpoints may assess, you know, usability, um, or, you know, your, your, your primary functional goal um, for the device. And then after a feasibility study, you'll move on to your pivotal study, which you know, is a larger study to you know, determine the efficacy or effectiveness, and then also to further assess the adverse events. Cool. Um, and then I think that there's this like timeline for drugs after they, after they get completely approved, and the company starts working on manufacturing the drug, they have like 17 years, right? To, for, for the patent to expire mm -hmm. for device, there's no, like, it, it's just the, the normal patent life. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm not familiar with, you know, the, the drug life cycle from approval to expiration of patent, but I do know after a drug is approved, you know, you have your post-market surveillance, which, you know, is also considered a, a phase four trial. Um, and for therapies, um, you know, gene therapies, there is a 10 market or excuse me for gene therapy. There is a 10 year, um, phase four study that's required for, for additional safety monitoring. I see. And that's like pretty consistent interaction with the FDA. Like somebody yeah. from the FDA comes on site and make sure the processes are, are like, are like they're, I don't even know, like for gene therapy, are they manufacturing something? So they have to go to the office and check manufacturing. Yeah. Stuff. So with the gene therapy, usually you're, um, you're dosed with the gene therapy. So, um, it depends on, on the exact therapy type, but, um, for personalized gene therapy where you're getting, you know, um, apheresis, you're getting your cells taken out, sent to a lab. Um, you're getting a, you know, a, you're getting yourself transfected and then they return it from the lab, put it back inside of you. Um, and then you're, you're in the initial trial. So like a phase two, phase three trial, and then after the termination of that trial, you know, you've completed all the study visits, you're enrolled into another trial where you're returning to the site, usually on like a six month yearly basis, and they'll follow you um, for 10 years. And, you know, it's 
it's run just like a, a phase two, phase three trial where you have your trial data points. Um, they're doing a statistical analysis of the data, whereas like a post-market surveillance, you know, th that they're really just looking for adverse events, um, which are just reported to the FDA a little bit more informally. FDA breakthrough device designation. Neuralink getting that designation doesn't necessarily mean that things are going to go substantially faster. It's more of just getting more access to resources and, and therefore it may go a little bit faster, but it's not going to be like way, way faster than not having that designation. Yeah, correct. It doesn't really speed up. It's not, um, like an emergency use, um, or like a public health emergency, um, type of designation. It really just gives you, um, increased collaboration and access to the FDA prior to, um, your various submissions, whether that's your IDE submission, um, PMA. Yeah, PMA, sorry. So okay. yeah, it gives you increased access either prior to your IDE or your PMA submission. Um, if you're gonna go that route, there is a chance that, you know, it could go de novo, um, but you know, you kind of wait and see after the IDE. Um, and I'm my site's main point of contact and I travel for my job primarily um, to make sure that the data that the sites are entering into the trial database matches uh, the subject source documents or their medical records, making sure that you know, the, the trials being conducted according to good clinical practice and the regulatory filings are up to date. And then of course, uh, the primary concern is, is safety and making sure that, that safety events for subjects um, are being appropriately reported to the FDA. We primarily focus on drug development um, however, we do work with some device manufacturers and, and device trials. In addition to source data verification, I'm also looking for any protocol deviations. So any procedure that's not done according to protocol needs to be documented and reported to an institution's institutional review board, um, which is basically the, the governing body, the regulating body for research at a hospital. Um, so I identify protocol deviations if they're considered to be major or critical. There's a special, you know, reporting process for those. And then I'm also looking at their regulatory filings. So there's a whole gamut of essential regulatory documents that uh, we're expected to see on site. 